the theme for the evening talk is exploring the uh, emotional life. During the days we have been here together, we have touched, hopefully, on various relevant themes of uh, day-to-day life. And in that touching upon that, we have looked at some of the foundations for awareness. We've explored what it means to be a human being, the composite of being a person. We've looked as well at the area and into the, the field of uh, creativity and the way of its expression and its relationship, if any, to I and uh, my. And in the many aspects and features of uh, human existence, hopefully it contributes to us comprehending and making sense and, and understanding as much as humanly we can what it is to be in this world. And there might be times and moments, quite often in fact emerging out of the silence of things, when we do experience and feel a sense of wonder and, and awe at just being alive and how easy it is for us in day-to-day life to take anything and everything for granted and thus it becomes rather difficult to see things afresh, to see them anew to see them with uh, clear, bright eyes and uh, warmth and spaciousness of heart. And it seems rather a pity for us if the day-to-day life is rather taken up too much with uh, routine, with getting things done, with the desire for accomplishment and uh, achievement. And that preoccupation of thought and planning and ideas, when it gains an exaggerated place in our life, there's not much chance nor hope of being receptive to anything else. We only end up committed to results, to the picking out of life certain things which we prioritise and say, well, We'll go for that, whatever it might be. So meditation in its larger sense is one which is not defined nor confined to a, to a form, though obviously we use it here a lot, sit, walk, stand, recline, form, but it's a state of being which has the opportunity through receptivity to, to flower and emerge and to touch us in particular ways that puts the everyday matters of our life into a kind of perspective. Anyone who is genuinely meditative, who has a genuinely meditative nature, is very unlikely, perhaps impossibly, to be in a situation of exaggerating the importance of one own existence, 
one rather intrinsically knows that one, as so to speak, doesn't belong to oneself, but belongs to the nature of things. One doesn't belong to I and my, but belongs to the very way of things in this uh, uh, phenomenal world that we participate in. And everything belongs to everything else and nothing belongs to itself, nothing belongs to I and my. And a meditative consciousness, a consciousness which knows what it is to be rather silent and still, and just knows enough of those precious moments that it does allow that kind of meditative understanding to, to come through. And if we can have some faith and trust in all of that, then it will mean that it won't be a matter of constantly working on one's ego, constantly having to give attention to the forces of desire that arise. But rather, meditative awareness will look after one's existence. It will take care of things in its own, own kind of way, because there'll be a natural outcome of uh, natural wisdom about what is skillful, what to be attended to, what to be ignored and neglected and forgotten, renounced or whatever. So in the speaking of meditation, we are of course with regularity referring to the form of it, and that form is a discipline, and the discipline invites its own letting go and its own renunciation, so that we truly can just be, and out of our being, we can live with this world quite naturally, quite easily, quite uh, uh, effortlessly. We don't think in life in terms of problematic terms. It's much more thought of and related to as participating in a vast field from one day to the next and one feels as close to the trees and the flowers and the earth as one does to friends and, and family and associates or one's local environment or whatever. Having said that, of course, in the feeling life, in the emotional life, issues do arise and the most common form of issue, or one of the most, which human beings in the emotional life and therefore in the thinking life also have to deal with, and it's a, it's a problem which besets and besieges human beings, and that is the one of attack and defend. That this particular pattern and syndrome can be so widespread and uh, pervasive that even when we're engaged in it at a relatively refined and subtle level, we forget that that small fire inside of attacking and defending whatever is the very same fire that causes world wars which arise out of the mind through standpoint and through a position 
of being intensely for and intensely against, against. And when that gets inflamed, of course, it's the steps towards violence and the support and, the, and destructiveness. So if we can attend to ourselves quietly and meditatively and inwardly to its subtle expressions, perhaps in a way our own inner life can really provide us with tremendous insight into human relationships, into what causes what, why this suffering, this dukkha arises in the world. And we have, as uh, the Buddha himself commented, in this body from head to toes, the whole world exists, not speaking in any kind of philosophical, idealistic way, but meaning the condition of the world, the, the way of the world, the, the impact of the world, we can see its registration in our own life. So if we look at the inner life and the emotional life, one feature of it, and it's a very important one, and that is the experience of joy, the experience of being a genuinely happy human being. And we sense, in some way, we perhaps sense that this quality of happiness is our birthright. We wish to be happy. No one with a drop of common sense would want to be unhappy. And we try to organize and arrange our life so that our emotional life is such that what we do makes us feel good, makes us feel happy. And we wonder, how is it that we do attend to and direct so much focus and attention to making ourselves happy that we're constantly faced with the experiences of feeling quite unhappy and sometimes desperately unhappy for short or long periods. And it can be such an extraordinary way of things in the emotional nature that those who are not putting a tremendous amount of time and energy and focus and knowledge and expertise and etc. to get happy, to be happy, actually seem happy. And one wonders, what has happened for those human beings who are driven to try to get happiness and seem to stumble and fall and have constant troubles with themselves and with others. And those people who are not pursuing it, who have a different sense, a meditative awareness sense of life, and who seem very untroubled by life, and therefore naturally, easily happy. Years ago, in the uh, 1970s, I spent the best part of a year, I suppose, in uh, solitude and in a, a cave on an island in the Gulf of Siam, my, my monk's days. 
And in uh, everyday life, conventional life, people often talk about moving, going from one place to another. And generally, most people want to move, as it were, up market rather than down market. And it's not altogether different, actually, in among um, uh, monks who love uh, the forest or the desert or the, uh, or, or, or the cave or, or remoteness. And caves of, in the Buddhist tradition have been subject of a two and a half thousand year love affair uh, with them. That in other words, there are five star caves. <laughs> and over the uh, years, when one of the monks has left the cave, it won't be long if it's regarded as a really good place for another monk to move in. And this is the same, if I may say, with myself. And the monk before last, who was in there in the sixties, who actually died in died in the cave, when they found him, and basically the lay people know because each morning one goes leaves the cave to go down to the the village, in this case the fishing village, and with the begging bowl, then the lay people kindly put food in the begging bowl and then one retreats back up to the cave. So when monk doesn't turn up, they know something's wrong. So when they found this monk, beside him he had a number of drawings. And these drawings were given to his old teacher, who was also my old teacher, one of the one of the drawing, very simple drawing of earthworm, and those of you who know what when a, a lawn of grass is pristine, earthworms make little patterns on top, little columns of earth there, and the le- message he left under this drawing which he made of uh, uh, the uh, little marks that earthworms had made was. Uh, earthworms writing letters to mankind. These days we say humankind in this case. Uh, and another one which was uh, quite um, uh, quite lovely was of a monkey uh, sw- uh, swinging in the trees. And the monkey had a huge smile on its face. And the monkey said, Oh, what happiness to know that there is no happiness in this world. So sometimes, in, when these drawings, which were eventually were hung, hung up in the monastery there, and, and many others as well, it's sometimes in looking at the madness of pursuit, which is a severe problem of human beings, one sees that there's no happiness of any measure, deep measure, uh, in it. And yet, our mind thinks 
and believe, well, unless I do, I'll become paralyzed, I'll become uh, uh, a vegetable, uh, etc. And it can't understand a way of life and being in the world which is fully participatory, clearly engaged, yet is not driven by need. Because we've got so used to the formation of needs and desires and wanting as a propelling influence. And we can't imagine what it would be like to act and participate in which there's no need to. Not driven. Not compulsively pulled from one thing to another. Just things are unfolding in their own free and, and profound way. And perhaps the monk who died in the cave perhaps giving us all some reminder of that. When it comes to being driven it does get so not necessarily but so easily into attack and defend. We often don't like that language we call it being competitive. And we forget that it's the feeling in emotional life which is as much a factor as the thinking. So in that, as a number of you have uh, spoken in various ways over, over the days, the thought arises uh, in the mind and it might be defending one's own position and attacking another, boosting oneself up and putting another down. And this attack-defend can be just momentary and rather subtle and seemingly inconsequential, or it can be full of the most ugly bias and prejudice and hatred. And its manifestation outwardly can only begin with, at some point, the view arising of separation to attack and to defend. And that view needs some kind of social environment for it to build up and get sustained. And humanity is quite often divided for and against each other because we simply put ourselves, our consciousness, into social environments which could give justification and support to attacking and defending politically, socially, economically, colour, race, creed, gender, etc. But it's still a movement in the mind with emotion with it, with thought with it, with a position with it, it couldn't sustain itself on its own. It has to have the acknowledgement, the backup, the confirmation of other human beings. And thus we build. And in that, we have all the obscenities of what goes on on this earth. It is such a strong pattern and conditioning with uh, human beings that we forget that the out, not only the outcome of it is 
terrible suffering, obviously. But we forget the emotional influences that fuel it from within. Something emotionally is going on which is feeding the syndrome of attack and defend to such a degree that we believe in the inherent truth of what we think and what we feel and what we say and what we do. And it's such that we can move so much into the mind's view, the divisive, separateness, and all the ugliness that we've seen upon this earth, that the emotional aspect to it is actually forgotten and neglected. We forget the emotional influences which fed it in the first place, and we get bound and identified with our position of attacking and defending. And we get used to speaking that way, acting that way, believing that way, personally, socially, ideologically, etc. Meditative awarenesses of being receptive and as still as possible is the wish, hopefully, or the interest to come back as to what's fueling my divisiveness with my loved ones, with my... uh, friends, with people who live in another part of the world that I don't understand, with my government, or whatever it might be. What's fueling it? And somewhere, feeling life, emotional life, is fueling it. And we often say of people with great power in this world and great influence, and who are very narrow in their view, and that, and with the self-righteousness that comes with it, these people are so mental, so in their head, so conceptual, so analytical, so political, or whatever the language that we might use. And to a degree it's true, because the mind has forgotten the heart. It's forgotten what else is going on. inside, and there's no feeling of it left. No touch, no access to it. You and I, we could be living in our emotional life in fear with various circumstances, not actually experience fear, but it's determining too much of what we do, or what we can't do. And we've forgotten the fear. So, receptivity and some uh, depth within gives access to a meditative awareness, enables and allows the joys of life to come through naturally and easily and spontaneously and all of that which is a tremendous sign of uh, inner and emotional health. But also, what's fueling the divisiveness? But sometimes we'll say, well, it's anger. The feeling, the experience of it is I'm angry. I'm angry with what they are doing. I'm angry with myself. I'm angry with this situation or whatever. So you say, oh, the emotion of it is an anger. There's an anger which we may not actually feel, but it's actually expressed through the language, through the concept, through the way we view. Without any emotion, 
but nevertheless it's an anger with. And then we say, but what's, what's giving support? What if I get underneath this anger? What, what then am I beginning to notice? And maybe one notices that the anger is fueled by a desire. I want something from it, that, this, she, her, them, or whatever. I want it for others, I want it for myself, it doesn't matter. And the force of the wanting, even wanting for the good, wanting for the noble, wanting for the best, isn't fueled with understanding, but it's it's fueled with investment. It's fueled with egotism, with I know, I am right. And in the fueling of it that takes place, that the force of desire is there and it's being frustrated. I can't get what I want. And the pressure of not getting what one wants, that pressure is called anger. It's called anger. Anger is a form of unresolved pressure. So they say, well, but, yeah, but with this anger, what else is? But the desire is fueling it. It's maybe creating turmoil in the emotional life. It may, the emotional life may be almost dry, but it's creating turmoil or, or pressure in the conceptual life. So one can make all sorts of decisions which hurt and harm others and not even feel a thing in terms of what one is saying or doing or giving concession to. And so what else is fueling this emotional movement then? It's okay, desire is one aspect of it. Another aspect which is common is feeling hurt. Every day, at every retreat, people will speak in some way or other about the judgmental mind, about being negative, about um, 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 comparing and complaining about attacking others and defending, or attacking oneself and then defending oneself. And one sees the personal and the global implications of this. And one aspect of that is our incredible difficulty as human beings of dealing with the feelings of being hurt. And we might say, well, during my childhood I was hurt severely, and therefore it makes me extra vulnerable, or something happened to me or to somebody else that I was close to, and I really felt what that meant, and that as a result has made me very sensitive, whatever. I was put down so much in my formative uh, years, and so now I'm terribly cautious about saying anything in case I have a number laid on me, or whatever. So there's the feelings that arise of being hurt or the potential for being, for being hurt. And when we can't deal with that, a little bit like, say, having a wound and the finger pressing on it, we react to it. We react to get away from it. And the only way that we seem to know in our reaction to get away from it is through blame. This isn't right, this is wrong, this hurts. This shouldn't be like this, this is like that. I feel hurt, I feel disappointed, I feel frustrated, I feel wounded, I feel victimized, or whatever. And it's so difficult, 
as human beings to stay with this particular feeling that the way we get away from it is to get into our mind and with our mind use attacking and defending with our mind use the storyline with our mind use our justifications for, with regard to oneself or with regard to another or both because it is exceptionally difficult to deal with those kind of feelings of disappointment, um, hurt, things not going as one would wish. So when we retreat into the mind, it doesn't tell us too much about the story line of why I feel so mad or why I feel so bad. It just tells us we're having a great deal of trouble dealing with this deep inner feeling of feeling hurt by something or someone. And it takes a lot of maturity, perhaps that might be the word, a lot of practice, a lot of development of learning to stay steady, quietly and gently and firmly with that feeling. And if we can learn to stay steady and accommodate that feeling, we won't slide and slip into attacking and defending and constantly justifying the feeling or berating and attacking ourselves for not being able to deal with it. If human beings were just a little bit committed to this, the consciousness of humanity would be revolutionised. If human beings were just a little bit committed to seeing the utter futility of attacking and defending, of building up and flagging off, of the syndrome of uh, uh, judgmentalism and divisiveness, to see the futility of it as an escape from going deep, life would be changed dramatically unrecognisably. So willingness not only to go deeper and to look into this movement say from hurt and disappointment and uh, that movement of those deep inner feelings to mental stories and justifications the willingness to do that is not only providing a wonderful and special service you know, for oneself in every sense of the world but also, it points the way to an important resolution of human problems, which are bound up to a tremendous degree between that feeling, the insecurity which it generates, the movement in the mind to feel justified or to get, sec- get secure or to get what one wants, at no matter at the cost. All of that greed, selfishness, arrogance and ego, anger and hatred, divisiveness, it's all a kind of unspoken comment on the inability to go deep and stay close to that feeling and hang in with it. This practice, as we've said many times, is and key with regard uh, to this but also 
as an antidote to all of this as well is the capacity to be receptive to joy and appreciation. There's a lovely word in the Pali language, I spoke the word dukkha the other night, and another word is mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A, and it means joy. And joy means a happiness which we can't make a claim and ownership of. Joy at just the witnessing of. Just as when coming here this uh, evening, going along the the road there, there was uh, a fox with a long red bushy tail there and just turned and then gradually moving up through through the hedge and through the, through the through the field, quite lo- lovely uh, sight to to see. And one knows one can't say, "Oh, that's my fox," and uh, start making uh, claims on it. One certainly has no um, appetite to uh, join those who uh, hunt these uh, creatures to the ground and all of that medieval activity, and one just appreciates the sight of, and it brings a joy just to see and just to notice. And even though others, farmers might say, oh, my chicken, my lamb, and of course, naturally enough, have a different perception and immediately a different concern, etc. But let none of that take away the appreciation and the joy, the mudita, that comes when we are just touched by the ordinary and the everyday which we can't make claims over. And mercifully, so far, we haven't turned the, the moon into a piece of real estate. And all, all that kind of divisiveness that goes on. So that, that kind of receptivity and the knowledge and the access and the experience of that also acts, as I say, as a wonderful antidote as well to the difficulty of life and the fact that sometimes others, situations, life itself, so to speak, lets us down. And sometimes we, with others who have been close to us and who have led, led caring and and wonderful lives, something seemingly terrible can happen to that person. And you say, how is it possible that this person who led such a uh, a caring and kind and compassionate life, how could it be that this happened? And we might say, well, the conditions were there for it to happen. These things happen in life. The universe isn't a benign place to to live in. It's just what it is. And it's neither good nor bad, but it's just what's manifesting and what's revealing what's revealing itself. And sometimes we just begin to sense and understand that in in such such a way that joy with life comes and we have enough clarity and maturity of being 
that when things come which are disappointed, disappointing, when we feel let down, when things are not working out as we would wish, even with the most noble ideals, we know that all of that, the conditions for that and the results of that, all belong in this huge field called existence. And in some way or other we then begin to understand not only ourselves but others as well and that understanding of others is not a kind of conceptual psychotherapeutic kind of understanding we're understanding that people are what they are do what they do say what they say ignore what they ignore just as we do and somehow the emotional life has understood it understood it so well and clearly the whole notion of disappointment seems rather empty of any truth to it one doesn't kind of believe in disappointment one doesn't believe in surprise in terms of that shocked by and has gone deep enough into the feeling life to connect and understand all of us together involved in all of this together. More than that, as I say, keeps pointing to something which is very enlightening in the deep sense of the word, is very uh, 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 freeing and brings its own joy. May your being live with awareness. May all beings work with and accommodate the emotional life. May all beings realize a wisdom which is all accommodating. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.